Good morning. Today's scripture reading is John chapter 7, verses 1 through 31. After this, Jesus went about in Galilee. He would not go about in Judea, because the Jews were seeking to kill him. Now, the Jews' feast of booths was at hand. So his brother said to him, Leave here and go to Judea, that your disciples also may see the works you are doing. For no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. For not even his brothers believed in him. Jesus said to them, My time has not yet come, but your time is always here. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify about it, that its works are evil. You go up to the feast. I'm not going up to this feast, for my time has not yet fully come. After, this, after saying this, he remained in Galilee. But after his brothers had gone up to the feast, then he also went up, not publicly, but in private. The Jews were looking for him at the feast and saying, Where is he? And there was much muttering about him among the people, while some said, He's a good man. Others said, No, he's leading the people astray. Yet, for fear of the Jews, no one spoke openly of him. About the middle of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple and began teaching. The Jews therefore marveled, saying, How is it that this man has learning when he has never studied? So Jesus answered them, My teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. If anyone's teaching is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I'm speaking on my own authority. The one who seeks his own authority seeks his own glory. But the one who seeks the glory of him who sent him is true. And in him there is no falsehood. Has Moses, excuse me, has not Moses given you the law? Yet none of you keeps the law. Why do you seek to kill me? The crowd answered, You have a demon. Who's seeking to kill you? Jesus answered them, I did one work, and you all marvel at it. Moses gave you circumcision, not that it was from Moses, but from the fathers. And you circumcise a man on the Sabbath? If on the Sabbath a man receives circumcision so that the law of Moses may not be broken, are you angry at me because on the Sabbath I made a man's whole body well? Don't judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. Some of the people of Jerusalem therefore said, Is not this the man whom they seek to kill? And here he is, speaking openly, and they say nothing to him. Can it be that the authorities really know that this is the Christ? But we know where this man comes from. And when the Christ appears, no one will know where he comes from. So Jesus proclaimed, as he taught in the temple, You know me. You know where I come from. But I have not come of my own accord. He who sent me is true. And, he, I'm sorry, and him you do not know. I know him. For I come from him, and he sent me. So they were seeking to arrest him, but no one laid a hand on him, because his hour had not yet come. Many people believed in him.
they said. When the Christ appears, will he do more signs than this man has done? This concludes the reading of God's word. Who has believed what he heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men. A man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised. And we esteemed him not. Prophet Isaiah speaking of Jesus. Have you ever experienced withering opposition in a relationship? I'm not talking about a a critical comment here or there. I'm talking about a a steady, persistent hostility in a relationship. That the kind that that saps your strength in every sense of the word. Threatens your joy and and just sorely tempts you to to throw in the towel. Maybe not even just in that relationship, but, but on life because of that relationship. You see the face of your enemy in your mind's eye when you wake up. And you, you hear their voice in your head when you lay down. I'd, I'd argue whether you're a, a Christian or not, Opposition, in that sense, whether it's at work or at home or in your immediate family or with a distant relative or in your church or in your neighborhood, without fail, opposition is deeply painful. If it's not, something's wrong. (laughs) It should be painful. And if you're living to please the Lord, friend, not not just, you know, showing up at church on Sunday or checking boxes, but, but the orientation of your life, you're laboring to please the Lord. And opposition arises not just on on one relational front, but all relational fronts, every relational front. And it remains. It doesn't go away well, then you have some idea of what Jesus experienced for nearly all of his public ministry. Think about that. Look at John 7, 1. Because this sets the stage for the entire chapter. After this, Jesus went about in Galilee, walking about. He would not go about in Judea because the Jews were seeking To kill him. Have you, how would you feel if a whole group of people were dead set on taking your life 
at the earliest possible opportunity. I mean, Jesus' experience, this whole chapter, 31, 32 verses we just read, it's a, it's a catalog of scorn and derision and criticism and, and hatred and opposition. It, it happened in private. It happened in public. It, it even arose among his closest followers, okay? He wasn't just misunderstood. He was misunderstood. But he wasn't just misunderstood. He was passionately resisted and aggressively maligned. Where, wherever he went, he was opposed. Some of us have felt that, maybe in one relationship or one area. Can you imagine your entire existence, wherever you turn, just scorn, opposition? And yet, what do we read 30 verses later at the very end of our passage? John 7, verse 30. So they were seeking to arrest him, but no one laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. Amen, Josh. Why why could they not arrest Jesus, kill Jesus, fulfill every desire of their hatred and scorn and opposition to Jesus when they desperately wanted to? Why, Why could they not do that? Friend, it's because The will and desires of men, no matter how strong the hatred or violent the opposition, can never derail the sovereign work of God. That's why. That's the frame in which this entire chapter goes down. Opposition from men, prevailing purpose of God. And every expression of human antagonism that John records in these verses, because it's like a catalog of human enmity, is designed to illustrate and instill that reality I just described in our hearts. Why? Because it's only when we live, friends, with an abiding confidence that that the good purposes of the Lord will prevail, that, that we discover power to persevere and endure in the face of our own opposition and our own persecution. If you don't go into that, I'm not talking about discovering it halfway along the way. If you don't go into that experience of opposition, convinced that yes, people were seeking to kill him and nobody could lay a hand on him because his hour hadn't come. You're gonna shake You're going to waver. God wants to strengthen us, friends. And this passage serves us, please hear this, as both saints and sinners. There's a lot going on here. As saints, what is this? It's a practical word of encouragement and instruction. Okay? We we too will experience the enmity of men on the path of obedience to Jesus. And there's a lot we can learn from his example here. Serves us as saints. As sinners, it's also a sober word of warning and conviction. Why do I say that? Well, because the the actions and attitudes of those who oppose the Lord here, 
guess where they surface? In our hearts too. Because until Jesus returns and makes all things new, what, what do we know about who we are? What's the Bible tell us about who we are as the people of God? We are both saints and sinners, right? We are both oppressed and oppressors. We suffer for the sake of God's glory and we resist him in pursuit of our own. And in almost every situation in our life, guess what? Both of those dynamics are in play. So I want us to focus on how Jesus responded to opposition and pay careful attention along the way to how our attitudes and actions are more often like the crowd than our sovereign Lord. Okay? So how did Jesus respond to human opposition? First, Jesus obeyed God's will. Verses 1 to 13, he obeyed God's will. The Apostle John informs us in verse 5 that not even his brothers believed in him. Think about this, okay? Imagine this. The, the biological sons of Joseph and Mary literally spent years, not a church service here or there, not a hillside with a cool miracle, years living in the closest possible company of the Son of God incarnate. Have you done that? They heard his words, they saw his deeds. They watched him perform miracles only God could perform, and yet all of that was not enough. Does that surprise you? It shouldn't, friend. If you know the natural spiritual condition of your own heart. Because as we've seen over and over again, the primary obstacle to faith in Jesus is not a lack of evidence, it's the pride in our souls that would rather try to be God, then worship God. We're just like that. And so they basically told the older brother, my translation, listen, if you're really the Messiah, stop mucking around here in the backwoods of Galilee and go play with the big dogs. You, you know Jerusalem, Judea, is the seat of power and prestige. It's the feast of booze where the entire nation gathers together in Jerusalem. So, Big man, make yourself known where it counts. Go to Washington. Surely, Jesus, the Messiah, would want to go and make himself known. I mean, if you are. And Jesus' response in verse 6 is very insightful. Look there. My time has not yet come. But your time is always here, guys. Jesus recognized that, that his brothers were working with an entirely different paradigm than he was for determining whether an action was right or wrong, wise or unwise. Because as far as they were concerned, what was true? No time was too early to build a following <laughs> and secure the praise of men. If, if your goal, Jesus, it's not rocket science, Jesus, <laughs> is to get people to follow you, then, then what are you waiting for? Go up to Jerusalem and get it done. I mean, you, you can almost just hear the smug mockery in their voice when, when Jesus replies, declines the invitation in verse eight. You go up to the feast 
I'm not going up to this feast, for my time has not yet fully come. (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) we knew you would say that. That's what we thought. All right, we're going. (laughs) So long, Messiah. It's just dripping (laughs) with mockery. Because according to the wisdom of the world, which, which is what his brothers represent, it, Jesus was crazy. If you want to build a following, I mean, what do you do? You go up at the beginning of the feast, when it's, you know, all kinds of people, you stand up in the temple and, you know, get your following, then we can take on the Romans. Christian, you too will be perceived as absolutely nuts by the world around you. So why didn't Jesus comply? Well, it's because he had a higher allegiance than the approval of men. You know, his his own family included. He, He was ruthlessly committed to obeying his heavenly father And the guiding presence of the Holy Spirit convinced him that this is not the right time yet for me to go up. He he didn't say he would never go. Notice that. He simply refused their invitation to go for the beginning of the feast because he knew it wouldn't please the Lord. John 8 verse 29. And he who sent me is with me, Jesus said. He has not left me alone. He was filled with his spirit, right? Spirit-filled man par excellence. For I always do the things that are pleasing to him. There there was this inseparable relationship in the Son of God incarnate's life between being a spirit-filled man and a perfectly obedient man. Friend, I wonder, is that kind of obedience to God's will, is that your response when you experience enmity from men on the path of following Jesus? Is that what you double down on? Obeying God's will. Let's make something very clear here, okay? First and foremost, Jesus' obedience of the Father's will, here and all over the place, reveals and confirms his identity as the Son of God. Okay, it summons our faith. It urges us to, to believe and trust him. That's first and foremost what it does. But secondarily, and in a no less important way, Jesus gives us a provoking example to follow. So when, when we're tempted, what, what are we tempted to do? Just think about this for a minute. What are we tempted to do in response to opposition? Well, if you're like me, you're, you're tempted to do whatever will get your opponents to stand down or be quiet or get off your case. We're, we're, we're tempted, think about this, to make little compromises that, that don't violate an explicit command in God's word. Is there any place in the Old Testament that says, thou shalt not go up to the feast of booze at the beginning of the feast? No. But nevertheless, violate our conscience or the internal voice of the Spirit. When that opposition comes, we're tempted to start doing whatever 
even in little ways, make sense from the world's perspective instead of obeying the will of God. That, that's an enormous temptation. Because we just think it'll dial down the temperature in the room. Christian, the more you experience oppression or opposition on account of your faith, please hear this, the, the more significant the smallest acts of obedience to King Jesus become. And the more important it is for you to focus on heeding the voice of the Lord in the little things. All right? Because the, the standard God sets before us here and, and Jesus models in his response to his brothers is far higher than just avoiding scandalous sin. Pleasing the Lord means obeying his will in all the gray areas of life too by listening to the faithful prompting of the Holy Spirit. Remember that. Don't, don't exchange the freedom of living to please the Lord for the bondage of garnering the applause of men. That's a disaster of a trade. Matthew 10 verse 28 says why. Do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. So, so Christian, when you, when you, when you've, Feel the pain of opposition from the world. And that opposition tempts you to conform to the world. We've got opposition from the world tempting us to conform to the world. What do we need to do? Lean hard on the power of the Holy Spirit. Lean hard on that. Because the Spirit of God is faithful to guide the people of God in applying the Word of God as he did the Son of God to honor God in decisions big and small. First thing Jesus did, in the midst of opposition, he obeyed God's will. Follow his example, friend. Follow his example. Here's the second thing he did. Jesus declared God's word. We're going to linger here a little bit more and then our third point will be shorter, okay? He declared God's word. If you knew that a group of authorities in a particular city were hell-bent on killing you, would you think it wise to go to the most public location in that city during the most crowded time in that city and say the very sort of things that got you on the wanted list in the first place? That's precisely what Jesus does in verse 14. About the middle of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple and began teaching, demonstrating once again, he is not ruled by the fear of man, but by the will and command of his heavenly father. He did not decline his brother's invitation because he was a chicken, but because he was listening closely to the Holy Spirit. Not just in the big stuff, but in the gray areas. And the Jews listening to him, look at verse 15. They're dumbfounded. I mean, for real, that's kind of an understatement. You know, he, this guy, they knew this. He, he didn't go to any of the traditional rabbinical schools. And yet he speaks with, you know, as one who possesses great wisdom and understanding. How is it that this man has learning? Literally, how does he know letters? 
grammar when he has never studied. Uh, what? You realize that's not a neutral question, I hope. That's a loaded question. Because it implicitly assumes two things. What? One, Jesus is an ordinary man. And two, that he is limited whatever not, to whatever knowledge can be transferred from one human being to another. It, it, the very question presupposes a closed materialistic universe. End of story. And Jesus, never fooled, he, he perceives their unbelief. <laughs> And, and proceeds to address the real issue head on. What's that? He recognizes their objection to his divine identity reflects a far deeper problem with God's authority. Look at verse 16. So Jesus answered them, my teaching is not mine, but him who sent me. He, he unapologetically asserts that, guys, I'm not peddling the religious musings of men. I'm, I'm speaking on behalf of the one true God. That's the source of my teaching. J Jesus self-consciously identified himself as the prophet par excellence, called, equipped by God to speak as his authorized representative. Now let's make something very clear at this point, okay? Christian, you cannot claim to speak the very words of God the way Jesus did. Risk of saying the obvious. He was God, you were not. But, hear this, God has called you and equipped you and commanded you to what? To respond to enmity, persecution, and public scorn on account of your faith with an unwavering commitment to keep speaking the truth of his word just like the savior we follow. As Paul reminded the church in Corinth, we are, who are we, Kingsway? We are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. When the religious leaders in Acts 4 told the early disciples to shut up and stop speaking of Jesus, what did they say? But Peter and John answered them, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God. <laughs> right? You must judge. That's like a, that's a biblical drop mic moment. For we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. Oh, oh that we would remember that the same spirit that commanded and empowered them to do that back then is with us today. Now, nothing has changed, friend, except I would argue on the whole, we've surrendered a lot more to the fear of man than Peter and John did. Don't, don't allow the enmity of men to intimidate you into silence, Christian. You are not accountable to men. You're accountable to God. And, and he will not fail to, to vindicate the truth of your words to what degree? To the degree you courageously and respectfully speak, listen, his words in his way as his ambassador on his authority. 
And at first glance, the, the rest of Jesus after the, my teaching is not mine, but his who sent me, I stand on God's authority. The rest of his response to their question, verses 17 through 24, can, can appear a, a bit scattered. It, it's a rapid fire exchange, but, but there's a theme, a theme in everything Jesus says here, and, and a theme to his words, and that's this. He realizes opposition has been mounting for a while. So, so he seizes this opportunity. He could have seized others. It's not the first time he was opposed. But he seizes this opportunity to explain why the Jews, in particular, were unable to recognize his words as the authoritative words of God. Why, why were they unable to do that? What kept them from seeing and observing and believing that when Jesus was speaking, God was speaking. What did they stumble over? What got in the way? I want us to linger here because we need to be on guard against the same pitfalls, friends. Expect to encounter both of these obstacles we're about to look at whenever God's word is declared to you or you are declaring God's words to other people. Because the same obstacles live in our heart that lives in the hearts of everybody around us. Make sense? So, why could they not recognize Jesus' words as the authoritative words of God? Two reasons. First, because they were unwilling to do God's will. Look at verse 17. If anyone's will is to do my will... He will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I am speaking on my own authority. What's Jesus saying? Friend, if you come to God's word refusing to obey God's word, you will never be able to perceive the truth in God's word. That's what he's saying. Absent the obedience of faith, our our spiritual discernment of the truth is fundamentally flawed. If you want a fancy philosophical word for that, you smart types, (laughs) college students, it's part of of the noetic effect of sin. Okay? You, You will remain blind to God's truth as long as you are unwilling to submit to God's truth. Why? Why does it work that way? Because the true knowledge of God, it's reserved for the humble, friend. He's reserved it for the humble. D.A. Carson says this so well. Finite and fallen human beings cannot set themselves up on some sure ground outside the truth and thus gain the vantage from which they may assess it. Divine revelation can only be assessed, as it were, from the inside. From a posture of humility and submission. So so if you're struggling, let me be honest, if you're struggling to understand how something God says in his word or something Jesus says could possibly be true, that, that makes no sense, that's ridiculous. That doesn't pass the human reason sniff test. 
Well, consider this, okay? Could it be that you've exchanged the humility of obeying God simply because he is God for the arrogance of obeying God to the degree his commands make sense in your mind? Could that be? And if that's true on any level, well, then I encourage you to consider this. Who is God in that scenario? It's not him. Take a look in the mirror. They didn't recognize the authority of Jesus' words because they were unwilling to do God's will. Second reason, they were unwilling to seek God's glory. Look at verse 18. The one who speaks on his own authority seeks his own glory, but the one who seeks the glory of him who sent him is true. And in him, there's no falsehood. The moment, think about this, the moment you admit the divine authority in Jesus' words is the moment you confess there is a glory greater than yourself that rightfully commands your allegiance. Right? But our hearts are proud. My heart's proud. We, we like living for our own glory. We like chasing whatever makes us feel good about ourselves or, or look good in the eyes of other people. We, we refuse to recognize Jesus' authority. Why? Not enough evidence. Shout that a bunch of times. No, 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 no. Because we are fiercely committed to protecting our own glory. That's why. And so in contrast, what did Jesus do when he walked among us? He lived for the glory of God. His father, he, he sought the fame of the one who sent him. He wasn't playing language games to create power for himself. That the motives of his heart were pure. And, and thus the words that came out of his mouth, because out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks, were true words. He, he didn't twist the truth or hide the truth or manipulate the truth or use the truth. He delighted in the truth. And therefore, all that he said could be trusted. In him, verse 18, Jesus speaking of himself here, there is no falsehood. So they, they couldn't recognize the authority of Jesus' words because they were unwilling to seek God's glory. And you know, this, this threat to Jesus' life on account of these things, it wasn't new, friends. You could trace this all the way back. And Jesus does this here. To the last time he was in Jerusalem for a feast in John 5, and he healed a lame man on the Sabbath. And according to the Jewish law, the, the Sabbath was what? It was a day of rest. You weren't supposed to do any work. And the Jewish authorities decided Jesus telling a lame man to pick up his mat and walk was work. And so they got angry, really angry, angry enough to try to kill him. And I think many times, especially as Christians, we, we read that and we just think, <laughs> fools. Be careful. Lest you indict yourself. Because Jesus, look at verse 23. He, he points out the egregious inconsistency of their accusation. 
If on the Sabbath a man receives circumcision so that the law of Moses may not be broken, are you angry with me? Because on the Sabbath, I made a man's whole body well. You, you allow parents to perform the work of circumcising their sons on the Sabbath day because it's a holy act of consecration. And it was. P- pointing to the joy of, of living under the redemptive rule of God. And so guys, if on the Sabbath, I do the work of enabling a man to actually experience in his body, whole body, the joy of the redemptive rule and work of God. Well, then why are you so upset? Because what I just did back then, the last time I was here with you all, is the very thing, if you had eyes to see, that circumcision has been pointing to all along. And and the inconsistency in that. In their application of the law, what did it do? Why, why is Jesus bringing that up? He's not just looking to score points. He's a good shepherd. It exposed the real root of their beef with Jesus. He, he called him on the carpet, basically. Guys, I have not failed to fulfill the law. To the contrary, I am fulfilling the law. And that means this accusation of yours that I'm the lawbreaker is a total smokescreen. And it was. But because Jesus knew, what did he know? The real reason they were angry with him. What was that real reason? They had a fundamental problem with the authority of God. They didn't like his authority. I wanna be in charge. Not you, God. And Jesus exercised that authority. Look back at verse seven. Whenever he testified that their works were evil. So they, they claim to be upholding the law. But what is Jesus saying in response to that? Guys, to the contrary, you have weaponized the law to protect your arrogant pursuit of your own glory. That's what they were doing. And so the Savior's faithfulness to, to keep speaking the word of God, true words of God in the midst of relentless opposition, that, that sets an example for us to follow. Keep obeying God's will, keep speaking God's word. But might we have more in common with the angry crowd than the Lord they opposed? Do you really want to do God's will, friend? All the time, every situation, no matter the cost? Are are you diligently living for God's glory? Is God's glory, not your own, the driving ambition of your life? Is that what gets you up in the morning? Even when it's exceedingly hard or, or what that requires seems to defy the logic of your own mind? And, and consider the way you interact with God's commands. Step on some toes here. Do you... Do you do you throw the letter of the law at the slightest perceived failure in your boss or your spouse or your parents or pastors or policemen to justify your rejection of their authority? Or do you give careful consideration to upholding the spirit of the law in your own life? 
hum- humbly assessing and evaluating yourself in the light of God's word. He's getting in our business here. <laughs> and we need it because it's good. Even when people refused to recognize Jesus' authority, he persevered in declaring God's word. And so I say to you, Christian, follow his example, starting, starting with the word, the testimony of a life that is obeying God's will and seeking God's glory. Here's the last way Jesus responded to opposition in this chapter. Third, Jesus fulfilled God's mission. Verses 25 to 31. If you look at verse 25, it's clear that the people in Jerusalem knew that the Jewish authorities wanted to kill Jesus. And yet when when he shows up in the most public of all places and given the opportunity, they do nothing to him. They say nothing to him, verse 26. Some of them wonder, could it be that the authorities really know that this is the Christ? <laughs> just, you, just, you just hear Jesus. Forget that, guys. What do you think? <laughs> right? But then they recall his humble origins and conclude he can't be the savior of the world. This guy's just a mere man. That's where all the evidence points, nothing more. And so the Lord Jesus challenges them to reconsider. Look at verse 28. But I have not come of my own accord. He who sent me is true. And him you do not know. I know him, for I come from him. And he sent me. How did Jesus respond in the midst of opposition? What's he doing here, friend? He remained focused on his identity as one who had been sent. He he knew his presence on earth wasn't this independent initiative or solo enterprise. He he was here on a mission. He'd been sent by the eternal wisdom of the Father to rescue sinners like us from the death we deserve. Now let's be clear, again applying this, our origin is different, very different. We're not the eternal creator who holds all things together. We're finite creatures. So Jesus was sent from the father in a way that no one else could be or ever will be. Remember that. His his mission in in a critical sense was unrepeatable. And yet before his ascension, Jesus said what to his disciples? John 20, 21. As the father has sent me, even so, I am sending you. In other words, you're not here in this world by accident, Christian. You too are a sent one. And the father has has entrusted you with a mission. What's that? Why are you here? To delight in knowing him and making him known. That's why you're here. Remember that, especially when you feel opposition on every side. Your, Your life is not worthless because you're a sent one. Your existence is not pointless because you're a sent one. So even even in pain, even in sorrow, even in the midst of your physical death, know this, you have a divine purpose in this world that no enemy of God or you can ever steal away from you. You're a sent one. 
no matter how fiercely you're opposed, don't allow persecution to become your functional identity. You're a sent one. And as a sent one, Jesus made little sense to the people around him. And as a body of sent ones, the church still makes little sense to the world today. I mean, maybe we're, when we're engaged in a popular social cause, perhaps, but not when we're preaching the gospel, right? Not, not when we're calling men and women to repent of their sins and bow their knee to King Jesus. And so when, when you experience opposition on account of your faith in Jesus, do not assume that if you could just say the right words in the right way at the right time, that, that everyone around you would just, oh, well, sorry for the misunderstanding. It's quite clear now that you actually are speaking the truth. No, okay? In their enmity toward the father, the world rejected the son. And in their enmity toward the father and the son, the world will reject you too. Don't be surprised when you're persecuted. And when you are brothers and sisters, not because you're being a jerk on social media, but because you are rightfully and gently and humbly and patiently speaking the word of God. Do I need to give that aside again? That's another sermon. When that happens... Because you're obeying. Remember this. You need to rest in your knowledge of God the Father. Rest in your knowledge of God the Father the way Jesus does. Because the faith you hold on to is right for the simple reason that the Father you are trusting is true. Rest in that. And the Father you're trusting, the Father you know, the way this son knew his father, that father, your father, he's not sitting on the sidelines, just chilling, waiting to see if you'll finish the good works he's prepared for you. What's your father doing? He's ruling and he's reigning and he's working all things together according to the perfection of his sovereign will. (laughs) That's what he's doing. And so as the providence of God restrained the evil of men toward the son, So too the providence of God restrains the evil of men toward all who have been united to the Son through faith in the Son. That's you, Christian. So look at verse 30 once again. So they were seeking to arrest him, but no one laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. One day that hour would come. The hour of his betrayal, the day of his crucifixion. And and yet, this is the truth. Even that greatest act of human evil could not go down in the universe until the exact moment that the sovereign God ordained it and allowed it. There's no act of evil or human enmity greater than the crucifixion of the Son of God. You'll never experience anything in your life more wicked than that. And so if that friend, in the mystery of providence, was ordained by God to accomplish your greatest good 
and God's greatest glory. Why will you not trust him? Why are you taking the opposition and suffering in your life and, and throwing it back in God's face and saying, see, you're not faithful. Don't do that. Look to the cross. We serve a sovereign God who reigns. He reigns in your life, Christian. And so even if your human enemies succeed in doing the worst as they did to Jesus, remember that, okay? He reigns. His mission will prevail. And therefore, your mission will too. And so come what may, okay? Know this king's way. Ours is not a lost cause or a relic of 1950s morality or a danger to human freedom and tolerance and flourishing. The mission of the gospel is the power of God for the redemption of the people of God and with us, the entire cosmos. King Jesus will not be denied the reward of his suffering. Which means what, fearful saint? Criticized Christian? Hated believer? It means that because your God is too jealous for his glory to stand idly to the side, your victory is assured. That's what that means. And so when Jesus was opposed, and when all who are united by faith to him are opposed, what do we do? Shout louder. Type more. Run for the hills and create a commune in a corner. I've read books and watched people do all of that stuff. But it's just not John 7, is it? It's not. What do we do? We obey God's will. We speak God's word. And we fulfill God's mission. That's what we do. Because every day of withering opposition affords a glimmer of the harvest to come. And at the very same time the Jewish leaders were seeking to arrest and kill him, what happened in verse 31? Yet many of the people believed in him. That's the whole reason I'm in this pulpit. Don't, don't miss the connection here John's making. The enmity of man cannot prevail against the sovereign purposes of God. Didn't prevail back then. Not about to prevail today. There is one unstoppable force at work in the world, friends, and it's not the United States Army. It's the gospel of Jesus Christ. The good news of salvation from the wrath of God your faith in the Son of God who lived and died and rose from the grave to bring us home to God. So when you're hated by men for Jesus' sake, when your kids hate you, when your family in another country hates you because you came to the States and little did they know, you'd forsake the faith of your fathers and become one of those crazy Christians. When your spouse hates you, when your relatives disown you, when your co-workers avoid you, Follow the Savior's example. 
Obey God's will. Speak God's word. Fulfill God's mission because his purposes prevail. I leave you with this assurance from Daniel. Chapter 7, verse 14, before we sing. Because here is the existential reality under which every second of your existence goes down. And to him, to Jesus, was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples and nations and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. Heavenly Father, boy, that's encouraging. I pray that you would help us to not evaluate you and your ways if we are exploring Christianity or asking questions about the faith by saying, does this work for me? Or does this make sense to my friends? Or is everything I'm reading in the word that you're telling me to do, God, line up with human wisdom? Oh, Father, Thanks for reminding us in this passage that the true knowledge of you is reserved for the humble. Give us humility. And Lord, for those of us who have become either afraid or vitriolic in the face of present opposition or persecution, especially those of us that might think we're standing for you and Really, all we're saying and doing is just a horrible example. Lord, please forgive us. Help us. Reorient us. Refocus us. Thank you for your example. We want to be a people who obey your will, speak your word, and fulfill our mission. Help us to do that in your precious name. Amen.